There was a man who was down on his luck, and he was uh, desperately in search for a job. Well, he was walking one day by the city zoo, and on the front gate of the zoo, there was a help-wanted sign. Now, he didn't know much about animals, but he was desperate, and so he walked in and sat down with the zookeeper. Zookeeper said, now, I know this is going to sound strange, but our prized gorilla has just died, and it's going to take a few weeks for us to find a replacement. So what we need, we need somebody to dress up in a gorilla costume and just go into the habitat and play the part. The kids will never know the difference. And the man laughed, and the, and the zookeeper said, no, I'm, I'm quite serious, and we'll pay you really well if you'll do a good job. So the man was desperate. He agreed to do it. Reluctantly, he agreed. They put him in a costume, and he went out into the habitat. And before long, children started to come up to the glass and knock on the glass and make faces, and the man thought, well, I better start acting like a gorilla. So he started to scratch himself and beat his chest, and he ate a banana. And the more he did some of those little things, the the greater the crowd became, and the kids were so enthralled with the gorilla. And and the man started to kind of get into it a little bit. You know, the crowds got bigger, and he started getting up into branches and swinging on vines. And he was starting to have a really good time. He really forgot entirely about the ridiculousness of the whole thing. And the crowds got bigger, and the man swung from one vine to the next, And at one point, he got so full of himself that he swung really high, he did a backflip, and he landed in a different habitat. Uh, And he felt a hot breath on the back of his neck, and in that moment, the man realized that he'd fallen into the lion's den. And he forgot entirely about the fact that he was dressed up like a gorilla. He started to scream for help, help me, help me, and the lion grabbed him by the neck and brought him in face to face, and the lion said, hey, buddy, you keep yelling, you're going to get us both fired. Uh, you know, we, y'all, we, we live in a world where it's hard sometimes to tell the difference between what's real and what's fake. Uh, but usually, given enough time, the truth will come out. Usually, if you give, if you give it enough time, what's real, what's genuine kind of rises to the surface. And y'all, that is absolutely true with our faith. And as we walk through the book of James, we find James, he is beating that drum over and again to say that true faith in Jesus will show itself true. Nobody's perfect, but genuine faith will have a decisive impact on our lives. It's not theory, it's practice. It shows up in how we live. And so uh, last week we took a look at James chapter 1 verse 25 where James commands us to look intently into the word of God. Look intently, not a passing glance, but look intently into God's word so that we might become effectual doers of the word, so that it might apply, we might do it, live it out. Well, today, James is going to test that idea by giving us some very real practical um, application. Uh, We might think to ourselves, okay, do the word, I got you, but where do I start? There's There's 66 books in the Bible, where do I even begin doing the word? Well, James is going to help us get a head start on that today. And he really doesn't uh, pull any punches here. So as the, uh, as the rubber meets the road, let's just, we've got a lot to cover today, so we're just going to jump right into it. This is James chapter 1, verse 26. What does genuine faith look like? James says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Very subtle to start out, okay? James is very subtle. Uh, Y'all, we, okay, let me say this. We tend to take the word religious or religion. James uses that word. 
we tend to make that a, a negative word. We say, I don't have religion, I have a relationship with Jesus, right? I don't have religion. And that's good, because religion can imply uh, just rules and rituals and not relationship, not vibrant faith in Christ. But James is not trying to confuse us with that word here. Uh, James is not trying to give us a negative word to, to throw us off. He's just using the word religion as a neutral term for faith. So I don't want, I don't want the term religion to skew our understanding of the main point. Because the main point is this. If I think myself a genuine Christian, if I think myself religious, but I do not bridle or control my tongue, then I am deceiving my own heart with worthless religion. And so simply put, James says, if, if I have real faith, that faith is going to have a tangible impression effect on how I speak. Now, he's going to go into much greater detail in chapter 3 on the issue of speech. But the key point he's making is this. If, if you and I, if we just think spiritual thoughts, if we just feel spiritual feelings, but our behavior goes unchanged, our speech remains unchanged, James says that spirituality is a mirage. It's not real. It exists only in our minds, only in the realm of feelings, but it has no effect, and therefore you can't call it genuine. Now, nobody's perfectly holy in what they say. James affirms that in chapter 3. Nobody's perfect in our speech. But this is the first test, he says, of genuine faith. Does your speech, increasingly does your speech reflect that God has given you a new birth, that you are a new creation? Does my speech reflect that I'm devoted to Jesus and devoted to his word? Otherwise, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that faith is somehow separate from behavior, that we can categorize faith as a separate thing in life that doesn't have any saturating influence on how we actually live, or in this case, how we speak. And that's just simply not true. So James says, your faith is not genuine if it doesn't change how you talk. That's not the only test, but he goes negative there. If you don't control your tongue, your faith is worthless. And those are his words, not mine. Um, but look at verse 27. He's not done. It's, it's speech, of course, but that's only part of it. Now he goes positive. He wants to show us what faith, not just what it isn't, but what it is. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, James is not trying to give us a comprehensive view of Christianity as if these things are all that matter somehow. But he is saying that these things will be part of genuine faith. These will be hallmarks. They will be uh, mile markers along the way. You can't have genuine faith without them. And here's what he says. You see the first thing? To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Now, this is a very common phrase and topic in the Bible. You see it actually all throughout the Old Testament, not just in the New, that uh, people are supposed to care, have deep concern for, uh, be generous toward uh, widows and orphans, those who are, in, by worldly standards, typically very helpless and maligned people groups. And this is not just something that God tells us to do, but this is, a, this is the heart of God. There are a lot of places like this in the Bible. I'm just going to give you one quick one from Psalm 68. Listen to how God's character is reflected in this command. A father to the fatherless and a defender of the widow is God in his holy habitation. 
So what God says, when God talks about our care for widows and orphans, he's simply telling us to reflect his care, his heart. Okay? Uh, in ancient times, and, and I don't know that a whole lot has changed, depending on the culture, but in ancient times, widows and orphans were often very poor and forgotten people. Uh, because they had, in their context, they had no way of earning income. They had no legal protection. They had very little hope for a better future, to be a widow or an orphan. And in fact, a lot of people believe that, that they must have a divine curse upon them. That's why bad things have happened to them. That's why your husband died. That's why your parents aren't in the picture, because God's mad at you. So there was a stigma that came with it. It wasn't just a financial thing. There was, there was a, a stigma associated with it. But God on his part, we just saw it, God expresses a deep love and a deep concern for these people. And so James says it ought to be true for us as well. Pure and undefiled religion looks like this to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to care for their needs, to encourage them, to affirm their dignity, to help them in any way that we can. And this is, we might call this uh, pure mercy or pure kindness. Because to help a person like this, you don't really get anything in return. You don't get a promised return on your investment. You might not even get a thank you. But you're certainly not going to get an I scratch your back, you scratch mine return when you bless somebody who's incapable of blessing you back. And that's really the whole point, is that it's pure mercy, that it doesn't help your bottom line to open up your pockets to people in need. It doesn't, it, it, it perhaps, it, it could even risk shame on your part for associating with the lowly, because in certain cultures, we just don't do that. We, we leave them alone and we tend to our own business. But James says no matter, whatever the barrier may be, you push it aside because your higher ambition is to reflect the heart of God. That's why it's pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. Because just like God, we are blessing people who cannot bless us in return. That's what it means to be a Christian. God has granted us mercy that we cannot return payment for. We can never pay him back. And so we act like God toward those who need it most. And so part of what James says, having a pure faith, part of it means that you expend yourself for the sake of others, especially for those in our midst who are helpless. You lose concern for your own reputation, your own bottom line, maybe your own selfish ambitions. Whatever it takes, you devote yourself to a genuine love for others, a love that shows itself in going out of your way for their sake. So this is opposite of a me-first mindset. And James says he calls it pure religion when we live that way. That's the second test. We had speech. We have treatment of others, especially those who are helpless. And then thirdly, James says, you see it, pure religion is to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's his third test. Now, when James uses that term, the world, he's not talking about the physical creation. He's talking about the world in a moral sense. Uh, the systems and the beliefs and behaviors of the world that are in defiance against God. Okay? Uh, and so James is essentially telling us here that we ought to keep ourselves pure in the midst of an impure world, in the midst of an impure culture. We live in purity. Uh, don't give yourself to the whims of your sinful uh, culture, but live a life of obedience. And Jesus says, if you'll do that, if you'll obey this, this third issue, then, then he says, you will be a light to the world. Um, we're told in the Bible, keep your behavior uh, pure among the Gentiles, among those outside the church, so that they may see your good behavior and turn and glorify God. That's what's 1 Peter. 
And so we're meant to keep ourselves pure, not to say the world is bad and we're good and, and it's us versus them, but to live purely so that the world can see purity, that they can see Christ in us. And so you notice what James is emphasizing right here, in very short order, three tests of genuine faith that, that, that really saturate the whole book of James. We see them in every chapter. Pure faith is exercised, he says, in how we speak. It's exercised in our moral behavior and in our treatment of others. Speech, behavior, and then in our love for others. Now, if you really think about it, that covers everything in life, doesn't it? I mean, I didn't, I didn't stretch my, my mind too hard this week in thinking about it, but man, I, I, don't, I can't think of much of life that exists outside of our speech, our behavior, and how we treat other people. And so at this point, even though this is really just two very short verses, uh, we, we shouldn't be sitting here wondering, okay, what else? What more? We don't really need more. The question, I think, for us right now is, okay, how to? If this is the test of genuine faith, then James, tell us how to apply it, right? Uh, And he really does that at beginning in chapter 2. We're going to go into chapter 2 also today. James gives us a test case. Now, he didn't really have to do this. He's already really given us enough to ponder and and to chew on and hopefully to act on. But James is going to show us what he really means when he talks about pure mercy and pure kindness, And so this test case in in the beginning of chapter 2, it's probably not totally hypothetical. It's probably an issue that did come up in the early church. But look at what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. How do we apply? He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes. And you say, sit here. You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there. Or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Uh, The culture in which the Bible was written, we call it an, an honor and shame culture. Uh, and, and specific to these verses, rich people were honored. They were held in high esteem because of their wealth. Poor people, as you might imagine, were shamed. They were dishonored. They were held in low esteem. They were pushed to the side because of their poverty. But the church became a unique place in the midst of the, uh, the ancient world. Because in the church, there was a definitive statement of equality, of equal dignity, that every single person, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, no matter what you were, you were equal. You were equally lost in your sin and in need of salvation, and you were equally granted the grace of Jesus Christ to make you new. And so the church was the one place in the ancient world where rich and poor shared the same space and shared equality in their standing among God's people. It was an utterly radical thing within the early church, within that culture. But James warns us about the fact that we're always, always tempted to revert to the old way. We're always tempted to just mimic the culture. And so he gives us this test case, and he assumes the negative here because he's trying to make a point. Imagine two guys walk into church, and one is obviously rich. You can tell by the way he's dressed. The other is obviously poor. He's got dirty clothes. And what we do then is we do what comes naturally. We favor the rich man. And we ignore or dishonor entirely. We dishonor the poor guy. Now, why would we do that? Well, you know the answer as well as I do. Because the rich man has more to offer. 
I mean, we, we like being associated with wealth and power. We like being close to people who can open doors for us, right? Who, who get positive attention. We, we like the idea of becoming friends with a person who will invite us to important social functions and include us in things like that. We like the prestige of saying, hey, you know who goes to our church? And then drop a name. Uh, we like to imagine what this person could do for me, right? What kind of... Uh, uh, career doors he might be able to open for me if we got close to each other. And frankly, we like what he puts into the offering plate. That's what's natural to us, even as church people. That's what's natural. But James says, if these things are true of you, then you have made distinctions among yourselves and you have become judges with evil motives. You have not esteemed these two people as equal in dignity and therefore you are not treating them as Jesus sees them. And so James issues a reality check in this case. You see it in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? Now this is so key. James mentioned this earlier in chapter 1. That the poor, the materially poor within the church, are not poor at all. They are rich in faith. In fact, God has uniquely chosen them, in spite of their worldly reality, he's chosen them to be rich in faith. That now, because of Jesus Christ, these poor people share the same divine inheritance as the rest of us. All the riches of God's kingdom and his glory, forever and ever, in spite of what the world has esteemed them to be. And so to treat them as poor, to dishonor them as such, James says, that not only is wrong uh, against them, it not only hurts them, but it reeks of ungodliness. Because you are treating them in a way that is opposite of how God has treated them in his grace. And then James says, And by the way, why are you so enamored with the rich? Is it not the rich who dishonor you and use their power against you and thumb their nose at God? Now, James is not talking about the rich Christians within the church. But he's talking about wealthy people in general who are maligning the Christian church who look down their noses on these Christians, and James asks a very simple question. What has their money gotten them that you want it so bad? What do they really have that you don't have a million-fold in Christ? Why are you honoring them when all they do is trample you? See, in this scenario, James says, we're looking through human eyes merely and not through the eyes of God. And in that case, we failed the test. Now, James could have used a hundred different scenarios right here in terms of a test case. He could have given us lots of different test cases to make the same point. And the point is this. Are there places in your life, in my life, where our speech is betraying us? Where our moral behavior betrays us? Where our treatment of others betrays us? That no matter what I think myself to be in terms of religious faith, no matter how I posture myself in front of others, are there any places in my life where the proof is in the pudding in a way that betrays genuine faith? That I have, what, I have a veneer of the real thing, but not the substance to back it up. And if so, if that's the case, then we can't pacify ourselves on this. It might be easy for us to look at this test case and say, well, you know, I get it, but that's... Is that really that big of a deal? 
I mean, if I honor the rich man and dishonor the poor man, it's not like I killed anybody. Uh, Okay, not so fast. Look at what James says next. Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, the king's law, God's law, according to the scripture, and here's the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If you're doing that, then you're doing great. James says, keep it up. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, what's this all about? Uh, James is trying to show us the absolute seriousness of sin, all sin, not just the little ones versus the big ones, which a lot of times is how we do it, right? So, say I showed partiality, I know that's not, that's not a good thing to do, but I didn't kill anybody, right? And we can pacify ourselves in that, but James says no. Look again at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. James is saying that this, this specific sin, the sin of partiality, is a violation of the whole thing, the whole law. And, and we struggle to, to create a category for that. I know I do, because I think about a, a maybe a parallel situation. I want you to imagine for a second. You, you leave church today, and you get pulled over for speeding. You're going 15 over. And the officer walks up, taps on the window. You roll the window down. He's like, I got you clocked at 45 and a 30, and I'm also charging you with arson, with kidnapping, with murder. You'd flip out, right? Your heart would stop because you know in that moment that that's a ridiculous charge. You didn't do that. You're only guilty of one rule, right? You only violated one law. You got caught for speeding, but you're not guilty for the rest. And so how could James say, if you, if you sin at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing? How can he say that? Well, y'all, here's a massive distinction we've got to, to, to grasp and understand. That when it comes to sin, sin is not just breaking a rule. Sin is a rejection of God. You don't sin against a rule. You sin against a person. Against a divine person. You sin against the Lord. And that's why when when you open up your Bible, and there are a great many commands, laws in the Bible, we don't parse them all out and think of God as simply just throwing stuff against the wall to see what's going to stick for us. He's just going to give us as many commands as he can to try to cover every scenario. That's not how God's law works. It's not just a scattered bunch of rules. It's a unity that God's word, when we look at God's word, we take it as a unity, as a complete, a whole thing, because God has a perfect character and his law reflects it. And that's why to be guilty on one point is to be guilty, period, James says. Because it's not that I, well, I, I broke a, you know, from one to ten, ten's the worst, do not murder, that's really, that's a ten. You know, I just broke a couple of ones, what's the big deal? But James says, no, you've re- in your sin you reject the very person of God who gave the law, and therefore you are guilty. Now, that's a discouraging thought, and I'm going I'm to let me buoy us here for a second with some good news. I, I, we preach this every Sunday, I hope you know. The good news is that by faith in Jesus, our sin guilt is entirely forgiven. I don't want to give you a false impression here 
that God's got his finger on a big red button with your name on it right now, okay? If you have, if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then your sin has been paid for in full, in full on the cross, and that is God's gracious gift to you. That's why Jesus makes statements like this. This is from John chapter 5. Jesus says, truly, truly. When he says truly twice, that means you take it to the bank. I say to you, Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Those are Jesus's words. That means that by faith in Christ, you are no longer under the judgment of God. You are under the grace of God. That's the gospel truth. We need to rest in that truth. But then we come to something like this, what James has just told us. How do we explain this? Is there a contradiction here? James has just said that if you're guilty of one thing, you're condemned. You're you're guilty of all. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. How do we explain all this? Uh, Y'all, by the grace of Jesus, I just said it, uh, we have passed out of judgment, meaning we are sealed with Jesus Christ for eternal life. He will not change his mind about us. We can rest in that. Um, But James is making a point here that there is, you and I are under no threat of condemnation, and yet there is an accounting that will take place. There is a judgment that takes place for the Christian. It's what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he's referencing. Uh, Paul uh, explains it in, in a little bit clearer maybe language in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed, paid back, according to what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. We, Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ for punishment and reward to be recompensed for everything we've done in this life, whether good or bad. You see that? Now, in case that's something that's scary to you, and it might be scary, and it's meant to sober us, that that's not a judgment between heaven and hell. That's not the judgment James is talking about, that Paul's talking about. This is simply Jesus evaluating our lives as his followers. Why is James going to such great lengths to command us to live a new life, to make it practical, to live it out as if it's really true? Because this life matters. You don't just get saved and go on to heaven. If that were the case, we'd baptize you. We'd just hold you under, right? Send you on home, right? No, this life matters. Your life matters. And we will, we will give an account to Jesus for how we lived as those who received his mercy as Christians. And so what James is saying is very simple. You see it in verse 12 again. Speak and act in such a way that you anticipate giving an account to Jesus for your life. Because you will. Because I will. And specific to James's larger point, he's talking about the issue of mercy, right? Specifically, mercy to the poor, mercy to the helpless, the, the, the widows and orphans. And he says, if you have received God's infinite mercy through Jesus Christ, but you have not acted mercifully toward others, you have not loved others, especially those who cannot love you back, help you back, then he says the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a painful experience for you. You may very well be a Christian, but there's going to be a burning away, 1 Corinthians 3 says, and it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be painful 
because we cheapened the mercy we'd been given by not returning it in how we lived. And so what James is saying is this, uh, painful for those who have not lived mercifully, but wonderful for those who have. You see, he says mercy triumphs over judgment. To those who have loved and honored others, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be very sweet. Not painful, but sweet. You'll have nothing to fear. You'll have nothing to be ashamed of in that moment because it won't be a judgment of punishment for you. It'll be a judgment of reward because your life is reflected that you've received it and you want to share it. Uh, y'all, James is, uh, James is abrasive, but he's just, he's just telling us the truth. Y'all, when I, when I was seven years old, give or take, my family, we were walking through the parking lot one evening after a football game, maybe, and out of nowhere, my dad grabs me, hooks me with his hand around my neck and jerks me over. And I, I just lashed out. What'd you do that for? And then he pointed to a car that was backing out that I didn't see, and the car, even worse, the car didn't see me. And so in that moment, there was a very minor and momentary pain that saved me from a much greater pain. And I just want to encourage you to look at James this way. James, James, in love, is trying to save us from false religion. James is trying to show us that you can't live on religious assumptions that only exist within and never show themselves without. It doesn't work. It's not genuine faith. So when James says for us to receive God's amazing grace, grace that covers every sin, we've been brought forth, he says in chapter 1, by the word of truth. But that doesn't happen in a spiritual vacuum, somewhere else, outside of reality. No, we are really saved in real life, and it has to have a real effect on our hearts, our speech, our behavior, our relationships. And if we grasp just how great the love of God is, that God would send his son as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, wouldn't that spur us all the more to a new life, to a real tangible life of faith, if we really know how much God loves us? James says it doesn't create complacency. It doesn't promote laziness, this grace of God. It spurs faithfulness. And the proof is going to show up in how you live. That's just the truth. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old English preacher, used to give this illustration. I think it's very helpful, and, and I'll share it as we close. He said, imagine you come home one day after a long day at work, and your neighbor is waiting for you at your front door. That's kind of strange, perhaps. But he flags you down, you get out of your car, and he says, hey, I just wanted to let you know that while you were gone, a bill came for you, and I paid it. I took care of it. Just want to let you know. That's obviously a wonderful thing for him to do. But your response to your neighbor is really going to depend on what the bill was, isn't it? Maybe it was just Reader's Digest, eight bucks. And in that case, you would shake his hand and say thank you. But what if your neighbor says, uh, while you were gone, the IRS pulled up in a U-Haul because you had 10 years of back taxes and they were prepared to take everything you own. And I paid it. You would not shake your neighbor's hand. You would fall down and kiss his toes. You would pledge your life to him, wouldn't you? Because of what was paid on your behalf. Y'all, listen, when we grasp just how much our forgiveness cost, 
when we recognize that God's mercy is not some frivolous extra thing that he just tosses down our way, that for God to be merciful to us cost him the blood of Jesus Christ, when we realize how much it costs to make us children of God, we will not be content to live shallow and self-absorbed lives. We will not be content to just give Jesus a passing glance and keep him in a vacuum outside of the rest of everything else. As if we could anyway. Now we will pledge everything to him. All of our worship. James says, all your heart, all your obedience. Kyle, all your obedience. Because genuine faith in a genuine Savior will produce genuine change. Now we need to pray that God would make it so. Because I know we all need to grow in this. Would you pray with me? Father, right now, before, we, before any other thoughts enter our mind, would you protect us, Lord, from, from legalism, from any thought that I've got to get serious so that God will love me. That I've got to get serious because I'm scared of going to the bad place. That, we, that, that is not what it is to be Christian. And so, Father, protect us from perhaps what our nature demands, which is obey uh, to earn. Uh, no, Lord, we, we, we must obey in response. Lord, if you have granted us such mercy, if you have loved us so deeply, if you sent Jesus Christ, Father, to be our salvation while we were yet sinners, then, Lord, let us take that truth to the deepest part of our hearts that we might be spurred on to a life of faithful obedience, to a life of loving obedience. So, Lord, protect us that, that we might get it in the right order today, um, that we have nothing to earn from you, that grace has uh, paid the bill, that all our sins are nailed to the cross, all of them, all of them. The ones we think are big and the ones we think are small, all of them. And therefore, Father, create in us a deep sense of passion and diligence and, and urgency to do the word, to obey your word, to obey your heart, to reflect your character in this world, in how we speak, in how we act, in how we treat others. And Lord, show us where we're deficient. Show us where we're living in sin. Show us even what we esteem as very small sins. Maybe this just the sin of partiality, which to us may not seem like a big deal at all, but to you it is. It's a sin that Jesus died to pay for. And therefore, we ought to take it with urgency. That as those who have received mercy, that we would live with mercy as those who have received grace, that we would become gracious. And therefore, we would have uh, on display here at Harvest Church a pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Savior. We know we're not perfect. You know it better than we do. Um, but Father, make us perfectible. Don't, don't, we can't be rigid and unchanging. 
Lord, push us to grow. Push us to follow and obey Jesus Christ with everything we have in light of everything we've been given. And Father, I pray you'd make it so. Lord, seal it and make it so. In his precious name. Amen.